Hello and welcome to Who Are You? This is a Babylon 5 Watchcast hosted by two friends who have gotten to know each other while re-watching one of the favorite shows from their childhood, Babylon 5. I'm Jafer. And I'm Laura. And it's book club day. Book club. Yay. Book club. I hope everyone finished their homework. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Jafer is fired from the podcast. Oh, but Ben fired is jumping up for joy. Oh, yeah. Did Ben read um, the book? <laughs> no, it's been sitting oh. in my bag. He hasn't had a chance. Well, that's true. That's I don't know how many copies of this thing are still running around, you know? That's it's, one thing that I'm It very is very about. readily available on Amazon. Is a quick, it? A quick Google. It's or I saw it used for like seven bucks. Yeah. Okay. Um, I so. didn't I didn't know. I so I think I talked about it when I got the second copy accidentally on I think I talked about it on podcast but the copy that I have is one of those bound hardcover with all three books in it and I got it at half price books so it's got a nice stamp in the front that says uh, mm. it's a property of one of the schools here in Oklahoma City <laughs> I have a ton of Star Trek books that were like that I'm just surprised that and this is if I you know, I, I don't know what it was at the time, but it's a mm -hmm. middle school right now. It could have been something different in the 90s, yeah. you know. But I'm like, why was this book at a middle <laughs> school? <laughs> not, th not that there's anything inappropriate, but it's just a very weird choice. I, at one point, had a complete collection of all of the Star Trek Nemesis relaunch novels wow. up through the end of the Typhon Pact or the whatever the one where they start where DS9 gets blown up in the books. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's like maybe 60 books or something. And I had read all of them and then I gave them, I think I've told the story on pot already. I gave them to Admiral Harper. That's right. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So, but oh, I want to say maybe 75% of those books came from various public libraries across the country yeah. that I then purchased online. <laughs> God love those Quite library common. sales. Yeah. Yeah. They've got this used on Amazon for $3.06 right now. Okay. So I guess we should actually say the name of the book too. So we're we're looking at the Psychor trilogy. That's what we decided mm -hmm. to do first. And so this first one is Dark Genesis. Written by J. Gregory Keyes. These came out in between seasons four and five, it looks like. Oh, okay. I'm glad you did that. Based that, off the release date. Math. And then also... On the inside cover of mine, at the very least, it advertises seasons one through four season guides <laughs> that I've one got the next two on my bookshelf. Yeah, I've got seasons one through five. Oh, okay. You have all of them. Got it. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, so this one came out in 1998 then, it says. The following year, the other two came out. So in 1999, we got the second and third parts of the trilogy. So I think I heard some criticism. I can't remember if it was on our Discord or if it was just on Reddit or like general Facebook that some people didn't really think much of this trilogy. And I know I read it when I was a child. Mm -hmm. I know I, I read all three of these books. Couldn't tell you anything about them. Did not remember any of it. So coming back to this this first one, it felt familiar. I was like, yeah, I do remember reading this, but I did not remember any of the plot going into it. So there were a couple of twists and turns and they were still exciting to me because I didn't really remember how it went. <laughs> but I remember I do have the other hardbound trilogy that has to do with Londo. And I remember really liking that hardbound trilogy. So okay. whenever we get there, I'm excited to see how that feels. And I think that one's written by Peter David. Okay. If I remember right. I think, yeah, I think we talked about that on a previous episode when we were talking about 
Peter David being urged to write books. And he's like, no, I write. Yeah. I write Star Trek books and Babylon 5 episodes. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should have some time probably in between stuff. Because <laughs> I, I mean, think these, those were important. These book clubs will take us. Uh, we're going to the plans to do one at the end of each season. Right. But there mm-hmm. we've got more seasons than we do. Yeah. We'll do Psychor book three at the end of season four. And we don't have one at the end of season five. Yeah. So the the way that this Dark Genesis starts out, and th- really the whole book is this, right? Mm-hmm. Is the genesis of Psychor. And, yeah. You know, about, I don't know, maybe after the midway through the second part, it's divided into four parts. That's when I was like, oh, Dark Genesis. This is, this is the genesis of the whole <laughs> Yeah. It, it finally dawned on me. I'm a little slow. Yeah, we've got Dark Genesis, Deadly Relations, and Final Reckoning. So the four parts in Dark Genesis, we start with part one, Holocaust, which is a uh, very ominous name, right? Right. Uh, Perhaps too ominous, (laughs) because I actually finished part one. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's not great. Like, things are bad for telepaths, for sure. But it's not holocaust bad like it's it's bad but it's not organized genocide yes i think that that's the big difference between this telepath holocaust and the actual historical holocaust is none of it is state organized that they describe it's all very individual led crimes against telepaths yeah it's it's tons of hate crimes against telepaths and it's Mm -hmm. terrible and i'm not saying otherwise but it is not like organized sanctioned genocide Mm -hmm. actually and you know it's it's a big point that's made throughout this first section that earthgov is trying to figure out how to deal with this sudden telepath emergence without violence without people being harmed because there's Um, a ton of it immediately it starts in 2151 and we get a little bit about the first scientific study published in a health journal that's like, no, telepaths are real now. <laughs> yeah. The lady that we're introduced to in this, I think it's the first chapter, mm-hmm. it, who's trying to decide whether or not to publish the study is very like tortured about it because it doesn't seem like it should be real. It doesn't seem like the study should be good. And yet everything she's looking at, it's all real. Yeah. It all checks out. Yeah. So they publish it and like the next day people are getting accused of getting cheating at cards and getting killed on the street for it. Yeah, it's wild. It's it's they even acknowledge <laughs> they even acknowledge how wild it is that it's like it's just a, a book like a study who read no one read this thing, <laughs> but it just gets sensationalized by the media immediately. Mm-hmm. And I think a little bit of that is uh, one of the characters we're introduced to who's very pivotal in this first part and into the second second and third maybe is senator lee crawford and he's kind of a you know he's a senate guy and he's looking to make his name he hasn't made his yeah. name for himself yet a lot he's kind of had like one bill that was interesting and he's looking for the next thing right he sees yeah. the study and he kind of knows that this is going to be the next big deal and he wants to be in at the ground floor right yeah he wants to build whatever needs building around this new subset of people and use that as kind of his path to power. So uh, one thing I liked about this book 
at the very start is it puts us at a good point in time, right? 2115. 15 is when it starts, but it ends significantly later. It ends in 2189. Yeah. The call outs to the what time, what year we're in, because things are moving at a clip. They kind of fall off toward the end of the book is what I felt like. Like I had less of a feel of where we were in time Yeah, at the, the end of the book. It definitely is a good job establishing like, hey, it's been five years. Yes. You know, like stuff's yeah. happened. And I know that this is just purely because it's topical and I'm watching it right now, but I really felt like throughout this book, they were kind of doing a thing like the House of the Dragon. One of the things about House of the Dragon is that there were there are time skips in it. I'm not going to give any spoilers away for the show in case you do okay. intend on watching it. But well, yeah, they, um, they've got a couple different casts, right? Yeah, they have like young actors for the first half of the season and then older actors for the second half because they go through several years of time skips throughout this whole first season of House of the Dragon. And that's what this book does as well. Like we start out with, I believe her name's Alice is the scientist who was publishing the study and we start out with lee crawford as being one of the main characters we go through their whole careers and then we lose them at some point and we Mm -hmm. go into the next generation of people trying to figure out this telepath thing and the genesis of psychor and i was thinking i was like man this book could have been a really cool like 10 episode prequel type thing (laughs) like house of the dragon for Babylon 5, like the way it's yeah. written, it really fits into that style and it would really flow. So I don't know. Th- th- I'm just a little biased by things I'm currently watching, that recency bias, but I-, I enjoyed that part of it. Yeah. If you have trouble with time, I could see this being a hard book to keep up with, but. I mean, it starts at the very least the bits I read. Every chapter starts with like a news headline or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, once that drops off, it probably gets a bit fuzzy, but. Yeah, because there's not uh, as many things where you can date stamp it when you yeah. get farther into the book, unless you're inserting those things like headlines and stuff. Yeah. One thing we do get in the first bit of this book is a bunch about EarthGov and how it actually kind of works. Mm-hmm. Like they don't like throw a charter at us or something or like describe the government, but we get a lot through context which I thought was super interesting because it had always kind of confused me. EarthGov was very nebulous in the show. And we know now that EarthGov is a centralized Earth government, hence the name. Sure. Where countries, as they exist today or in their future forms, elect a single senator Mm -hmm. to represent them at the centralized government. So it's kind of like if the UN was the government And then everyone had to vote for who their UN ambassador was, which is weird and seems grossly inefficient for a number (laughs) of reasons. Most Muslim highlighted by our current, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, most of those problems would be highlighted by our current Senate comparison and why, and why most legislative bodies that have a flat representation like this also have a secondary body that has a population based. Sure. Yeah. It's possible that votes are weighted for EarthGov. We don't get any detail like that, but we know that like the United States has a single senator. Right. And it's this guy. (laughs) And it's this guy, the hero of Grissom, which is a good name for a moon colony. Yeah. Yeah. Something happened at Grissom. I didn't quite get from the book exactly what happened at Grissom, but uh, Um, Lee Crawford was there. So Grissom was a colony and it's like how you envision 
old sci-fi colonies where it's a giant glass dome over mm-hmm. a city on the moon. And the dome had a crack in it, causing oh, an explosive decompression. Him talking about decompression because that's there's a <laughs> there's a conflict where decompression comes up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I, that was in the first little bit. I remember the first that couple of chapters. on the train. Yeah, yeah. So we do get you know some fun variety of settings in this book. You know, yeah. we spend a, a little time on the moon and have that decompression issue, and then the, like the settings are all over the globe. You really get that sense of we are in a time where travel across the earth is just we're all connected. Everything's possible. Yeah, the logistics are handled. There's not a lot of detail on that. And sometimes I did find myself chuckling because there were references to like vans and cars in such mm-hmm. a way that it's like you you are picturing the 90s car or something, not, <laughs> not future sci-fi car necessarily. <laughs> yeah. They don't refer to anything as like flying or hovering or, you know, mm-hmm. give away sci-fi signs of future car. <laughs> Just normal cars. Honestly, I don't think we're ever going to have flying cars. Yeah. And if we do, they will have very strict lanes that they are hovering over. Yeah. Yeah. 3D movement is so difficult. Mm-hmm. Most people <laughs> can barely handle 2D movement on roads, if we're being perfectly honest. Oh, my God. I was just thinking, some of these idiots that you see driving around in your car, we all know. We all see the idiots. Yeah. Do you want them driving a flying car? Do you want them going up and down (laughs) right in front of you or right behind you where you can't see them? Uh No. No, that's a nightmare. No one wants flying cars. You want hover cars or you want, like... Okay, I will I will immediately offer a caveat. Flying cars are entirely within the realm of possibility once their driving is fully automated. Yes, I was about to say that. Self-driving flying car? Fine. Self-driving flying car? Here for it. Computers can handle that shit. They're talking to each other. They're doing right. the thing. I'm not as worried. Let the robots uh, do it. Yeah. Yeah, let the robots do it. But, but human-piloted flying cars? No. Nah. No, you don't want that. It sounds fun until you realize you just... What would you even call rear-ended, like under-ended, top-ended someone? Yeah. Like, it's bad. (laughs) Jay Gregory Keyes knew that, and he was uh, (laughs) just doing us all a favor. Right. Just like, (laughs) don't even hope for it. (laughs) I I laughed because there are a couple references to things that happened in the 2000s. And, you know, I think in 2011, we almost got hit by an asteroid. I missed that. Did you miss that? (laughs) I I read that. That was a real thing. That asteroid was known and actually came within a distance of like two dis- two or three distances of Earth away from Earth. We like did not get almost dinosaur though. That's he used the re- the words almost dinosaur. <laughs> well, back when they wrote this in the nineties, they might not have known mm-hmm. the exact trajectory, and it could have been uh, a concern. True. It ended up just uh, clearly <laughs> eleven years later. It ended up just passing by us fine and not hitting the planet. Uh. But we didn't know that that was going to be the case until like. 2010 sometime because all kinds of stuff can happen out in space where it gets moved a little you know like yeah asteroids are not in a synchronous orbit that well some of them are but most are not that's that's what makes them scary yeah speaking of which did you see that thing where they redirected an asteroid nasa did i did like a couple weeks ago yeah that's fucking cool just like bumped it moved it a little 
It's all you need to do. If you get Uh it out of the way, far enough away, it's a big change. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So. It's the whole physics thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I was very happy about that. That was a super cool. It's like they threw a satellite the size of a car head first. Yeah. And I think, you know, I I heard them talking about it on the the NPR news quiz. Wait, wait, don't tell me. I don't know if you listen to it, but it's very funny. I love wait, wait, don't tell me. Yeah. Listeners, if you don't listen to wait, wait, don't tell me, do it. They were talking about like they had a camera on it, I guess. And it was on the front of the satellite that hits the asteroid. And <laughs> they, the, it basically just shut off because it hit the asteroid and they're like, yeah. Oh, it's, it succeeded. And they're like, well, you don't know that. <laughs> it just went <laughs> off, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. It, I mean, if you see the asteroid getting really, really right. close and then it goes off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that must be a funny video. I'm going to have to find that on the internet. <laughs> Okay, so in first half, we were talking about EarthGov. Yeah. Got a lot of great details about EarthGov. Yeah, all the different Senate committees. So it totally makes sense that there would just be a committee on Babylon 5. Yeah, it does make the Babylon 5 committee make more sense, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, just whoever's in charge of the Babylon 5 committee gets to talk to Babylon 5. And it does feel like that sh- rotates quite often from the mm-hmm. book. So oh, yeah. uh, there we are. Senator Lee is put at the head of the privacy and security. I can't remember. It's something about privacy. I think it's privacy and technology or something. Maybe that's it. Technology and privacy. And then kind of pivots into, well, not so much technology, but this is definitely privacy. It's a new type of privacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Somebody being able to see inside your head is that. It's what is it? The committee of... Meta extrasensory affairs, I think. Am I remembering it's that right? Short, shortened to MRA, Meta Sensory Regulation Authority. Ah, all right. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Which MRA so. has different connotations these days. I don't know if they would have used that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Ugh. Yeah. So the, they start out with everything's under privacy because it's like any new thing, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have a good place to put it a perfect place to put it you put it in a good enough place right yeah so we're trying to regulate these telepaths under privacy but we keep getting people keep getting murdered you know the media is being sensational and so we established this metasensory regulation authority Mm -hmm. which is going to handle this problem specifically and not be under the umbrella of other things yep and then they start mandatory testing which most mm-hmm. of the populace doesn't consider a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I think that if you were rewriting this book uh, or, the, or this story in some way, yeah. the events of the last couple of years would inform that a little bit better. <laughs> For sure. Yep. Mandatory DNA testing. Mm-hmm. They find a common, uh, not a common ancestor, but they find something, a common genetic marker amongst people. And because of the history of genetic knowledge that humanity has at this point, because of things like 23andMe, which it kind of doesn't, it doesn't put a date on, but the book does successfully predict will be a thing. Yeah. Um, they can definitively say that telepath, the, the telepath gene has only been in the pool for about 100 years. Yeah, it's very suspicious. It's very suspicious, and they don't know where it came from, and they just kind of 
at the very least in the parts of the book that I read, this might, I assume it doesn't change because of in the future, we know it doesn't change, but the general acknowledgement is that that cannot be made public knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. That this is the kind of secret that would definitely get telepaths all murdered. (laughs) Uh, We know that, you know, that this was not natural and it appears to have come from somewhere else. Then you get that, you know, this person is an alien kind of thing. And so it's okay to murder them because they're not really human. That would be a quick, quick hole for people to fall down. Exactly. So the general agreement between the handful of people who figure this out, and it is a small group, is basically just like, destroy all the knowledge and kill anyone who knows. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not ominous at all. Nope, not not a portent of Psycor to come at all. Yeah, and I think another, I hate to do another House of the Dragon analogy, but I'm doing it. Well, and it's not just House of the Dragons, it's, it's that sort of George R. R. Martin writing too, is that we we get some characters in here that we really understand them. Like, we understand what horrible thing they went through, or you know, what they're trying to accomplish. We know enough about their background that we like them. And they're still mm-hmm. doing some crazy things that you're like, man, you can't do that. But I want to yeah. like you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you made me sympathetic to you and now you're doing awful things. And, and Lee Crawford is one of those. I found mm-hmm. him pretty sympathetic and likable, but... This foundation that he laid when he gets this metasensory regulation authority, we we know what it's going to become. Yeah. You know, as you're reading this book, you know that it's going to become Psychor and it's going to become Bester and it's going to become you know Talia getting her brain wiped and mm-hmm. all the the and things that we know. Everything that happens with Ivanova and her mother, like all of this yes. terrible shit. And they talk yeah. about the meds to take away your telepathy very early as well. Yeah, and very early, they are not a pleasant experience. Yeah. That's not something that was, like, you know, formulated later. It's sleepers have always been unpleasant. Yeah, that's almost immediately they've got this thing. Yeah. All right, so back on the events of the book, we've been talking about Senator Lee Crawford. His aide and eventual successor, Kevin Vassett, continues the search and establishes an ambiguous relationship with rogue telephasts who don't want to join the uh, MRA. Yeah, Kevin uh, is a really interesting character. We get hints right away that something's not right about him. Yeah, we find out that Kevin himself, you know, is a telepath prodigy who hides his abilities from the MRA and his boss, Senator Crawford. Yeah, it's it's alluded to pretty early in the book. We get some vignettes of different things happening to telepaths. I want to say it's in like chapter two or chapter two or three, it's very early. Mm -hmm. And in one of them, we hear a story about a little boy who is on the run with his mother and trying to flee these telepaths or these vigilantes. And she, in that escape, basically sacrifices herself. And there's a allusion to like a Jason Ironheart kind of situation with her. Like, as she's dying, she passes a gift, and we find out that that gift is the ability to hide himself, mm-hmm. this little boy. So that is what sets the groundwork for him to later become Lee Crawford's like most trusted person. After all of that, EarthGov makes the determination that they form 
Psycor at this point, or is it still the MRA? Uh, we're uh. still in the we are in the MRA for quite a while in this book, I think. Okay. We get into Psycor in the last. The last section. chapter is becomes last, actually becomes Psycor. Like in the last part, because remember there was like the four parts. Yeah. So it's not the last chapter, but it's the last section. So we get a lot of really flavor to the Babylon 5 universe throughout. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I really liked was they put us also in the point in time where at the beginning of this book, we haven't met the Centauri yet. Yes. There's been no contact with alien races, and that's actually a thing for like Crawford. He really wants to yeah. meet alien races. He's sure they're out there. Actually, he wants I, to meet one them. of the they make a really good note about it is it's not the search for alien life. It's a search for intelligent alien life because oh, alien yeah, life is a dime a dozen. Apparently, mm-hmm. they yep. find bacteria on Mars and stuff like they find forms of life to be pretty common. But mm-hmm. it's intelligent life is is what they have not found. Yeah. And I think they even mentioned that, you know, there was some kind of bacteria or something, something very small found on Mars. And I think it was found by interplanetary expeditions. I think they mentioned that. Ah. Um, interplanetary expeditions definitely comes up later in the second section because they found, I believe it was also on Mars. It's somewhere in the solar system. They find some artifacts. And at that point, the telepaths of the MRA are commercial. They can be used for business stuff, which mm-hmm. I think that that's a natural assumption that if there's people out there that can read other people's minds, we're going to find a way to capitalism that really quick, right? For sure. <laughs> and so they have a business telepath at Interplanetary Expeditions that they have like observed these artifacts. Mm-hmm. And he has kind of like some kind of mental breakdown. He has like a psychotic break or something it seems like and then interplanetary expeditions gets rid of him real quick because yeah. they're afraid that their secrets are going to get out and there's an well, investigation into them <laughs> it's a detail from season four of the show uh-huh. so um skip ahead 30 real quick listen i'm just going to say it they do find a shadow ship on mars like a spider ship yes. on mars in the show I think the implication here is that these are not shadow technology, though. Okay. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I don't know, because I don't think he really gives us enough to definitively say. Okay, no more spoilies. Yeah, Um. so these artifacts are definitely organic. (laughs) They're some sort of organic technology, right? But that could be either either. Forlon or Shadow. So I don't think we get a specific statement of who they belong to but it would make sense for interplanetary expeditions knowing what we know of them so far in the Mm -hmm. seasons of the show that we've watched to possibly be a bit shadowy yeah yeah they're a bit shady (laughs) (laughs) puns yeah Um, yeah i really like that flavor of bringing in interplanetary expeditions and making them a part of this early on in this book like Mm -hmm. this company has been around for a long time they've been exploring that they explored the solar system it's not just something that came about after we met the centauri and we Mm -hmm. got out on our own like they were at the beginning eventually it's determined that the mra uh, director needs to not be a telepath yeah 
That's an interesting detail. Well, it mirrors kind of the structure of the United States where the leader of the military is a private citizen. Mm. And I hadn't thought about that. That's also a thing elsewhere as well in other governments. So I can kind of vibe with that. Yeah. There's a little bit of historical precedent. Unfortunately, secret telepath Kevin Vassett is named first director. (laughs) (laughs) That's ruining it immediately. Well, I guess same, same though. George Washington. Yeah. Yeah. He's not famous for his diplomacy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I noticed there was another detail that slips in here because this is where we start getting into the family stuff, right? Because Kevin Vassett becomes the first director because Crawford has an unfortunate accident. Oh, no. But he does get to see a Centauri before he dies. So that's very important to him. But he has an accident. Kevin becomes this director. And we start seeing like some of these relationships that happen earlier in the book. These people are starting to pass on. They have children. Now we're dealing with their children. And one thing that they talked about when they were looking at this gene marker is that the marker is passed down from the mother. And so telepaths are taking their mother's name and keeping it. Like they're they're staying in the mother's line instead of the father's line. Hmm. So, I don't know, I thought that was an interesting detail of like flavor. Let's make yeah. telepaths different because they they get their their important trait from their mother's line and so they take their mother's last name. And one of the important telepaths that we're introduced to right away is an Alexander. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe there's an important Alexander later. (laughs) Telepath with the name Alexander? Last name? Do we Hmm. we we know know any of those? Was there one? I think, you know, if I think back to the pilot, maybe? Right. (laughs) Oh, and I think briefly we had in passing an Ironheart. Oh. And I was like, oh, well, we, we know that name too. Yeah. That's fun. So Vassett has a secret daughter. That's another thing. He has a brief relationship with a telepath. Mm-hmm. We also had a Winters, but I can't remember if the if that was who he had the relationship with was a Winters. I don't think it was. But so the secret daughter is Fiona. Mm-hmm. And he sends Fiona to the underground basically he doesn't want her to grow up in psych or well not psychor because it's still in the amare at this yeah. point but he thinks that there needs to be an underground and he has his his original life was actually with the underground and he went to lee crawford in the mra to kind of feel things out see what he could do see if it was worth his time to try to gather power in that organization and then he did but when it came down to his progeny, he still did not want her involved with the MRA. Yeah, she's eventually captured and undergoes re-education at a telepath concentration camp. Yeah, I think it is Psychor at this point. So this must be about middle through the book. Okay. You know, we talked about Holocaust before, right? And it being very personal and not state-sanctioned and what have you. Now we have basically concentration camps for telepaths who are not or choosing not to be a part of Psychor. I think hers is in like Malaysia and she's forced to labor in the rice paddies. There's mention of cobras all around. And 
you know, that's an interesting juxtaposition that at first the violence was very like individual on individual. Mm -hmm. And now we have this authority that was a regulatory authority and now it's the psychor. And if you're not joining that, then you are in essentially a concentration camp. (laughs) Yeah. At this point, the, uh, the Holocaust comparison becomes a bit more apt. Yeah. She actually meets two telepaths in this concentration camp. One of them is her experience in like solitary confinement. This other telepath manages to break through whatever barriers they have for that. I don't know mm-hmm. uh, if it's just a distance thing or if, you know, like a lead lined thing. She's basically in a coffin somewhere. And this other telepath pushes through and his name is Matthew. And they share a lot of psychic moments together and basically fall in love. And then the other participant she meets is Stephen Walters, who has actually been sent by the director mm-hmm. to break her out because he found out she'd gotten caught and he wanted her to be free, but not part of Psychor. So he sent the Stephen guy to break her out of this camp. So he he manages to break her out right before she's assaulted by a Psychor operative who is a psychop. And he's like a P-12, I guess. Mm -hmm. And basically they found out that she's also a P-12 and they want this psychop to impregnate her, even though she's a, you know, prisoner in the concentration camp because they want another P-12 baby. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. All the fucking eugenics, Psychor. Knock it off. Yeah, it's. It's real dark. They got on this like forced breeding right away. And it's mentioned a few times up before this, you know, of I think one of the telepaths who's working with Vasset is, mm-hmm. you know, she's been engaged and he asks her about, you know, are you okay with your engagement? And she's like, oh, it's fine. And he's like, well, I could, I could scrub that for you. We can get you a different fiance if you don't want this <laughs> one. And she's like, no, the core's mother, the core's father, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we're already on that, that breeding thing. And we're not above forcing our prisoners to breed for us. <laughs> Fucking. Uh, it's real dark. Yeah. Real dark. So disappointed in you, future EarthGov. <laughs> Where's the oversight committee for this oversight committee? Damn it. Yeah, it really feels like the EarthGov of this future is very like, we're going to f- put in a committee... And that committee has control. And as long as nothing else is bothering us, yeah, you know, we're just going to not see anything that's happening. Like, you're telling me <laughs> Senator Jennifer Walters is going to call to complain about budget shit, like line item budgets on the size of the rooms. And that committee is that nitpicky. But the Psycor committee just can't be bothered <laughs> to acknowledge Psycor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, they did... Uh, <laughs> Early in the book, we do have an allusion that to that one of the senators, I don't remember if they said from where, is actually a telepath and hiding, yeah. you know, and he's trying to gather power. So it's like, you know, are we? Yeah, the Russian guy. Ugh. That's right. That's right. And so the telepaths are like quietly running their own show. And if they can just keep a, the bad things out of the sight of normies. Mm hmm. It's it's all fine. We can do whatever we want to consolidate power. But, you know, she doesn't get raped, thank God. <laughs> this book doesn't go there. Steven breaks her out as she's, you know, trying to escape from this psychop. 
And they managed to also have Matthew, the one that she was in love with, with them at the same time. I think he was brought in as like a threat, like you'll do this or we'll kill him or something. And they all escape. And there's some interpersonal drama between, you know, two two men and one lady. Yep. And, uh, you know, standard love triangle business that you got to throw in some somewhere. Yes. It would not be a sci-fi book written in the 90s without an obligatory love triangle. Yes, yes. We get some resolution. And Fiona ends up marrying. Yeah, she ends up marrying Matthew Dexter as a little boy, Stevie Dexter. (laughs) So they wind up naming the little boy after the third person in the love triangle, which is just hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so they they have this, this little boy. Meanwhile... The the director has been trying to figure out the source of where this manipulation to the human genome came from, right? Yeah. And it took him to Antarctica at one point where they basically just found a big hole where something had been, possibly some organic technology. Huh. Uh, Did they say what then, shape the hole was in? Was it squiddy or was it spidery? <laughs> right. Asking for there, a friend. Nothing so, so obvious. It's just a okay. big hole. And for some reason, I don't remember the, the sci-fi explanation, but they have reason to believe that there's something else like this on Venus. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. They, they were chasing legends and legends about aliens and telepaths, like in indigenous cultures and stuff and so they Mm -hmm. they're like oh well there's this legend that says one of them went into this to the morning star and the morning star is venus right yeah and so they go to venus there's a space station around venus now doing space Space station station stuff yeah vassett and i think yeah one of the alexanders we we met we meet a few alexanders but this is this is one of them they go to venus and they they see a ship down on the surface, mm-hmm. and they're able to communicate with it somehow. So they they go to the end of the atmosphere. The ship winds up, I think, like I think it was described as like enveloping them, and this is very explicitly a Vorlon ship. Mm-hmm. And the Vorlon does tell them what we know at this point in season at the end of season two that we know the shadows are bad and they're coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that part of why the telepaths were created was it was by the Vorlons to defend for these for these younger races to help defend themselves is what the stories yeah. is, you know. So the the Vorlon basically gives them some knowledge and tells them some cryptic Vorlon shit. You oh, know, the what? Classic. How shocking. And he says, I am here, I have always been here ah. <laughs> to the director. Yeah. Yeah. And he says another thing. One of the philosophies the director had was that he wanted the underground to exist mm-hmm. because he thought that the existence of the underground would make Psychor stronger, that these two things fighting each other would create stronger telepaths because they would be eliminating the weak as the underground struggled against the Psychor. Very Darwinian yeah. sort of uh, yeah. outlook on things. Atlas isn't the only one shrugging at that. <laughs> Jafar just rolled his eyes so hard they went back in his head <laughs> the Vorlon tells him evolution crawls to imperfection it ends in extinction and that's kind of his cryptic parting words mm-hmm. the director thinks on it and he realizes that he was wrong about this Darwinian approach 
they need to get rid of the underground and Psychor needs to be building itself stronger. And so instead of he was just sort of half-assed, you know, pursuing the underground and letting yeah. letting the letting the fight make everybody stronger. No, he's not going to put up with that anymore. Oh, and there is another bit here per the Wikia, <laughs> which is yeah. before the Vorlon leaves, he leaves a telepathic command in the mind of Miss Alexander for her or yeah. one of her descendants to come to the Vorlon homeworld when the time is right. Yeah. <laughs> Makes Lita's actions in the pilot where she scans the Vorlon. Yeah. Make uh, even more sense because she's being called. Yep. Vassett's uh, daughter Fiona and her husband Matthew are killed in a Psychor attack on their home. Yeah. The Psychor basically has decided to drop the hammer on all of the, mm -hmm. the underground and the resistance, right? So they have this big resistance base that I think this was at one, this point, maybe we're in Tennessee. And it was like funded by some guy years ago whose son was taken by Psychor and this rich man was very unhappy about it. So he funded the resistance. Okay. And they're, as they're like being assaulted, they're hearing from all of their bases all around the world that they're being assaulted as well. Like mm -hmm. it's a big coordinated thing. They're all being attacked. They're all being taken out at the same time. They try to give Stephen Walters, little Stephen. <laughs> little Stevie. Yeah, to, to Let's run. Let's give him a really uh, cute name. Let's call him little Stevie because this kid is so innocent. Nothing, they, Nothing's going to happen with this kid. <laughs> yeah, they call him Stee in the book. And I'm like, why did you call him Stee when Stevie is right there? <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. So they take little Stevie, or Stephen takes Stevie. Uh, he's running with another girl, like telepath girl. He puts Stevie in her care briefly while he tries to go back and see what happened to Fiona and Matthew. He, he like hears them dying from his, you know, the, the telepathic mm -hmm. scream. He hears them dying, goes running back looking for them. But while he's running off doing something stupid, the, the little girl and Stevie are gone. Mm-hmm. We flash to like a psychor nursery and a nurse is taking care of the little babies because mm -hmm. they don't, they're not with their, their mothers and fathers anymore because the core is mother, the yeah. core is father. <laughs> and Stevie has been visited by Kevin Bassett because this is his grandson, yeah. right? Because Fiona was his secret daughter. Yeah. And they do genetic testing. This is like... They've established that this is like legit. He would know. Yeah. You know, they don't yeah, have to. So, there's no guesswork here. He knows this is his grandchild. Right. And so he goes to see his grandchild. The nurse is, you know, slightly curious about that. So she goes to see who this little baby is that mm -hmm. the director felt like he needed to come see. And he's been given a new name. Oh, what is it? It's Alfred Bester. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> little Steve. And he does... He does uh, tell us that the name Alfred Bester comes from the sci-fi author, Alfred Bester, because at one point, Kevin is reading a Bester book to his assistant, or he's given it to his assistant or something, and they talk about Alfred Bester. So, yeah. Okay. He's been born at the end of this book. In August so. of 2189. 
Yeah, because you hear some people talk about this as the Bester trilogy, not necessarily the Psychor trilogy. And well, so if I you've mean, heard that... <laughs> the subtitle of the next book is Bester Ascendant, and the subtitle of the yeah. third book is The Fate of Bester. So yeah. that's super stretch there. Yeah, so it seems like if, you were, if you'd heard of this as the Bester trilogy and you're reading this whole book going, where the hell is Bester? He's at the very end, guys. Yeah. This is his prequel. So we learned a lot about how Psychor came about, what telepaths went through in those years that are only kind of alluded to in the show. Mm -hmm. I know that I read some criticism that didn't like this trilogy very much. I like this book. I don't know how I'm going to feel about the other two, but I think this would be a really interesting series if you wanted to put it to television. So quick math, Bester is 71 when we meet him. Okay, that seems to track. Like one thing I did notice about the characters in this book is that they are all seem to have life expectancies longer than ours. Walter Koenig is 58. <laughs> yeah. In 1994 playing Bester. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, human life expect, if human life expectancy is up, it's up, you know, like that checks. Historically, that's something that's happened to every generation, right? Uh-huh. Right. Right. <laughs> That hasn't that hasn't stopped, has it? Uh, oh no! <laughs> yeah, that might be the most optimistic thing in this whole book, huh? Yeah, <sighs> yeah. They they definitely mention a couple times that people are older than we would think of them being. So, yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed this book a lot. I enjoyed the bits I read. <laughs> And I, I'm going to finish it, you know, independent of uh, future book club and other things. I, I do have every intention of finishing it in the next week or two. It was just absolutely madcap for me for the last couple of weeks. So I I did not have as much time to read as I would have liked. Yeah, I hope that that's not a sign for the upcoming holidays. Well, I'll, I won't be in the country for them, so. That's true. Uh, I will be relaxing then, for sure. But we do have a bit of a holiday coming up here. We've got two weeks off. Mm-hmm. So no new episode next week. No new episode the week after. We'll be back November 16th with uh, the first episode of season three. Yeah, I already tried to watch it, and my son made me stop because he wanted to watch cartoons. So I'll have to try again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a little bit of time. So, but yeah, we'll we'll see you in a couple weeks, Internet. Before we go, I'd like to thank uh, Jeremy Siegel, of course, for our lovely theme music. You can find more of his work at jeremysiegel42.bandcamp.com. And thank you to Angry Duck Time Machine on Instagram for our podcast artwork. And go ahead, join our Discord. Shoot us an email, whoareub5 at gmail.com. We're going to do a mailbag segment, probably episode two or three of season three. So if you want to send us a letter, we'll read it on the air and talk about your thoughts, share your thoughts on the show. And we'll see you again soon. Have a good couple of weeks, Internet. <laughs>